Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Um, before we start today's show, I want to acknowledge um, we recorded the entire thing on some substandard audio equipment. Uh, it was a technical error that you will notice sucks. It sounds like I'm in an echo chamber. Um, I don't blame you if you skip this one. It's still a good show. Um, the problem has been rectified, and I just thought I'd throw this disclaimer up there. I do apologize. Um, and it won't happen again. Um, but you know, please enjoy. Uh, you can give a thumbs down on this one if you want <laughs> due to the audio quality. Uh, but it, it has been resolved. Um, I am very sorry. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Recovery from Politics podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Frame, and today is April 26th, 2021, Monday. And we have a few things I'd like to go for. Uh, I'm going to start off with one of my favorite topics, which is why Nancy Pelosi is a complete and total sham and why I absolutely hate her being Speaker of the House. Um, so I have always believed, and I think her record shows, that anytime Nancy Pelosi has the speakership, but for some reason the Democrats do not have the Senate, that's when she gets her most performative. That's when she passes her wish list for the Democratic Party as a whole. Obviously, the majority of Democrats, and I would argue a majority of Americans if they actually sat down with the information, would be more than happy to grant uh, you know, Washington, D.C. statehood. The District of Columbia has a population larger than a lot of states in this country, uh, specifically the Dakotas. I think it does rival Alaska. I think Alaska might have a few thousand more, but otherwise, you know, no. Um, and this required, this always goes back to that thing that's not really true, but it is a part of our founding, which is taxation without representation, right? That was the huge gripe we were all beaten to death in elementary school about why the united states felt necessary to break away from england was that hey we were being taxed unfairly and there was no recourse for us to deal with that there was no way we could have our say or day in court so we broke off and that was a big thing was that everybody would have representation and they created two sides of a house to do of the congress to do that well that argument is currently being put to the test. Now, I say taxation without representation isn't really real, but it kind of is because there's nothing about it in the Constitution. The Constitution is the governing document of this country, not the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is it's a declaration of war, basically. Um, it, it has no governing value. If you were to go into a court and cite anything from the Declaration of Independence, it would be refused. There is absolutely no court that would accept it as a governing document. It is not that. It was a letter to a king telling him to go fuck himself. Um, and so you can't use that. But it is an argument right now. I mean, you have over 800,000 Americans in a city that currently do not have any representation. In Congress and the federal government overrules the local government there 
I mean, also keep in mind, you know, D.C. still has to follow the rules of every other state or territory in this nation. They are still have to succumb to the Supreme Court, for example. Washington, D.C. had a gun problem, so they passed gun laws. And the Supreme Court famously came down on them like a sledgehammer and said, absolutely not. You have to obey the Second Amendment and, you know, kicked open a whole lot there. <clears throat> now... I disagreed with the Supreme Court's decision, but that really doesn't matter because D.C. had no choice but to accept it. So if we have almost a million people being forced to live under our laws, pay taxes, you know, it only seems right to me to give them, you know, some form of representation in the Senate, especially considering, again, we have whole territories with practically no one living in them, but they get two senators. Meanwhile, we have states like New York or California, which are highly, highly populated with, you know, over a hundred times more population than these smaller states, yet only two senators. You know, this brings up the whole argument, you know, why on earth would the founding fathers do that? And it's very simple. They couldn't see 200 years into the future to see what they would be dealing with now. I guarantee you, if you could go into the past and tell George Washington and Adams and Madison and all those guys, hey, um, there's gonna be this state called California, and there's going to be over 30 million people by themselves living in this one state. They would spit their tea everywhere because 30 million people in California was more than what was in the entirety of the colonies. The original colonies at the time the Constitution was being written. And I have a hard time believing that they would have been okay with the whole, oh, yeah, only two senators vibe. Because again, the Constitution was written in a way that didn't acknowledge political parties. Uh, you know, uh, the politicians of the past hated political parties. And to be frank, I think even most politicians today hate political parties. All they do is box you in, force you to fundraise for them, and do as you say, do as you're told, and uh, and don't dare say anything against the party. It's it's a horrible horrible deal to be made. Um, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that the re few Republicans who have left the party in the age of Trumpism uh, are a little more liberated. They seem a lot happier with their decisions. Whereas the people who remain in the party, who you have to think, you know, there's just no way you enjoy this. Uh, take somebody like Mitt Romney, for example. There's no way he enjoys living amongst the Trumpist people in the Senate. But he has no choice in the matter, and he sticks with it. <clears throat> so, obviously, my fix to this would be just to get rid of the whole state mandate and go to proportional representation for the Senate. Keep the number at 100. It's a nice, easy number. And that way you could say, hey, look, the Democratic Party got 30% of the vote. They get 30 seats. Ding, winner. You know, the Libertarian Party might actually get some seats. The Green Party could get some seats. The Republican Party could, of course, get some seats. And it would be re proportionally representative. Um, I think that's the fix. That's the easy fix. Get rid of this state thing because the Republicans do have a valid point. They are arguing if you give statehood to the District of Columbia, and I presume what would be Puerto Rico following this, what is to stop the Republicans from coming out 
and carving up the Dakotas even more. Be like, oh, you don't like North and South Dakota? Well, guess what? Here's East and West Dakota. You know, um, it, it's the same argument being made with the, the filibuster and the Supreme Court. You know, right now, Democrats are arguing that the Supreme Court needs to be increased in size to make up for the fact that the majority of the court is currently only there because two presidents couldn't win the popular vote. And then the Senate decided to change how they do business for the sake of power. Okay, uh, an argument could be made that George W. Bush's Supreme Court picks were not valid. Obviously, the same argument could be made for Trump, doubly so because Merrick Garland was denied a seat because, you know, Mitch McConnell was just decided to be an asshole. Plain and simple. So, you know, what is to stop them if, if the Democrats got their way? And I believe the current number being thrown around is 13 justices. So if they increase the Supreme Court by four seats, hypothetically, okay, well, what happens when the Republicans gain control next time around? What is going to stop them from increasing to, say, 19 seats? Now, that does seem ridiculous. And historically, that is not how this works. See, uh, way back in the day, uh, when we were carving things up and making things better, the United States Senate was in control of the Republicans, but at this point in history, they were the good guys. They had just won the Civil War. They were very high and mighty, and they were running on all kinds of happiness. But unfortunately, the South, you know, came back into the Union, and now we had this power grab. And guess what the Republicans did? They created North and South Dakota. You know, they created a lot of bullshit, empty states no one was living in for the sake of adding senators to things. And the Democrats, when things came around and they were once again in power, didn't respond. They didn't do that. Now, that was a different time. It was a different place. And also the Senate tended to remain in control of one party for much longer periods of time. So... You know, you could argue, well, yeah, but by the time the Democrats got in control of the Senate again, it was water under the bridge. It was like, dude, that was my grandfather was fighting over that. I don't even care anymore. It's just the way things are. And the way things are today, things being as mercurial as they are today, and the way the system is rigged in favor of the Republicans in 2022, the House is going Republican. Kevin McCarthy, as much as you hate him, is going to be third in line for the presidency and Speaker of the House. And when he's in charge, he will have a Republican Senate, even though there are going to be 20 Republicans up for re-election in the United States Senate. I guarantee you all 20 of them are going to win. And then you have the remaining 14 Democratic senators who are going to get their asses kicked. The Senate is going to flip Republican. The House is going to flip Republican. There's nothing that can be done about this. President Biden could be absolutely perfect, batting a thousand, doing everything correct, and will still lose. And that's how you know your system is totally fucked in the head. We need to get away from that. But I'm off topic because the real topic of this story is Nancy Pelosi and why she completely and totally sucks at her fucking job. So she went ahead and said, we're going to pass D.C. statehood. Why did she do this and why now? 
The timing of it's perfect because, again, in 2022, the Democrats are going to lose the Senate something awful. It's going to be an ass-kicking. And two extra seats from D.C. D.C. is hyper-partisan Democratic territory. We can easily assume that the two senators coming from D.C. will be of the Democratic Party. <clears throat> but the Democrats don't own the Senate. They kind of do because they have the vice presidential tiebreaker right now, but they really don't own the Senate because of this thing called the filibuster. And Senate Majority Leader Joe Manchin is in no condition or mindset to get rid of it. He talks a big game about compromise and working together and let's do things for the country. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I say, yeah, that's great. That's what the polls say. The polls say Americans want bipartisanship. But you know what the polls also say? Americans like winners. Americans like teams that fucking win. And the Democrats are professionals at losing badly. They always take the wrong lessons from everything. But Nancy Pelosi here sees that the Senate is not getting rid of the filibuster anytime soon, which means this bill for D.C. statehood isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And on top of that, Manchin has already said he doesn't want to change anything. So that includes filibuster, D.C. statehood, anything. So even if Mitch McConnell was feeling generous and said, you know what, I'm not going to filibuster this D.C. statehood bill. I'm going to let it come to the floor. It will lose. There is zero chance it gets to the 50-50 necessary for Kamala Harris to go in there and cast the tiebreaker vote. Not going to happen. Nancy Pelosi knows this, so this is where performative Nancy Pelosi comes in. She passes exactly what we all want, knowing damn well there's not a chance on this earth it's going to happen. And this is what Nancy Pelosi does. Whenever she, they have a supermajority, whenever they have complete and total control, Bills like this don't come up. Instead then, instead of taking the high road and be, or excuse me, not the high road, the low road, and just being like, you know what, Republicans, you guys had control for a long time. You guys ran everything you wanted under the table. You never talked about bipartisanship at all. This is what we're going to do now. It's because it's not going anywhere. And instead of doing that back to them when it matters, instead when all of a sudden Democrats have total control, Nancy Pelosi will suddenly give a shit about what the Republicans want. And she will shelf and scuttle everything that the left wants. <clears throat> this is actually the really sucky part about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Rashida Tlaib and the others is they are all young. Yes, they are energetic. Yes, they are there. They have a job. They want to do the job. They want to kick ass at the job. And right now they think that means working with Nancy Pelosi, which means they're already losing because they're very naive. They don't know this is how it works. That little group in the house that is known as the squad, which I don't care for too much, not because I'm against nicknames in general. Um, I know that weapons of war, you don't tell a soldier to go kill a human being on the battlefield. You give them a usually racially charged nickname. 
happens in every single war the United States has been involved in. You know? um, and so I do know that things like, instead of calling Alexandria by her name, if you call her AOC, well, an acronym is not a person, and a nickname is not a person. You, know, you can kill the squad. Can you kill Alexandria? Rashida? That that it's different, you know, that that's the way the human brain works. So I I prefer try really hard not to use them, but since we don't really have another name, the, the left wing of the Democratic caucus should be working to depose Nancy Pelosi. Should be working to get her to actually pass legislation that matters. Okay. If the polls are right and the American people want bipartisan work then why on earth are you wasting time with something that is clearly very partisan? D.C. statehood is extremely partisan right now. It's the right thing to do, and I think if you think of it in that frame of mind, you're willing to go along with it, and most people would be. However, right now, in this moment, D.C. statehood is extremely partisan. There is an entire half of the electorate of stupid, idiotic voters who think that this somehow would make their vote count less. When reality, rising tide raises all boats. I'm not a fan of democracy. It is the system we are in though. Everybody should have an equal vote, damn it. And this just seems, you know, crazy to me. So anyway, that was the first story. Uh, second thing that happened over the week, uh, the United States Supreme Court handed out some decisions. The one that I found the absolutely most atrocious and vile and completely fucking wrong was they ruled 6-3, I'll let you guess which six, that life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for minors is completely and totally constitutional. Now, Forget for a moment that you're asking states to pass a sentence on a minor that they will never again see freedom and saying that's constitutional. That's not cruel and unusual punishment, which I find to be yes. And, and just for a second here, life imprisonment, okay, fine. Denying parole, saying without the possibility of parole, okay, even if you give the possibility of parole, does not mean anyone is paroled. Hasn't anyone seen The Shawshank Redemption? That entire movie it has this running theme in it where Morgan Freeman, three separate times during the movie, every 10 years, goes in front of the parole board. And he says all the right things and he checks all the right boxes, but he's continuously denied throughout the film. This is how parole boards really work. Just because you're given the possibility of parole does not mean you're going free. So, but but it's just mind-blowing to me that in this case, you had a 15-year-old who killed his grandfather. I do not know the facts of the case. I don't know anything. It doesn't matter to me. All I see is very basic. A 15-year-old was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And the United States Supreme Court just ruled that that's constitutional. But the really sickening thing, I mean, if you really want to get over it, is that prior to last week, it wasn't constitutional. That's the fun part. There were two prior cases, 
similar to this one that had ruled, no, you can't just lock up a miner for life. What are you, insane? This case just overruled precedent, which is extremely rare. It does happen, and it's okay for the Supreme Court to overrule precedent. After all, slavery was a precedent. We don't want them ruling based on that precedent anymore. But they overruled precedent and then didn't give a reason. This was one of the things uh, you'll hear about, um, you know, the write-ups for these afterwards, the, you know, the approval, the dissent. Well, the dissent, which was only three, which was written by uh, Justice Sotomayor from Barack Obama, uh, basically rubbed the, you know, concurring opinion, you know, the majority opinion, rubbed their nose in the dirt constantly. Like, are you kidding me? You guys aren't even providing any reason for it. And she did such a fantastic job. She quoted Kavanaugh, who in previous decisions uh, on the court, off the court, in testimony, wherever, as saying that, no, the, it, it would be absolutely improper and wrong for the Supreme Court to overrule something to reverse precedent without giving a reason. Well, this decision, 6-3 in favor of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, again, parole does not mean freedom, for a minor, And they didn't even cite a reason to do it. They didn't say, hey, although we know these two previous cases brought before the Supreme Court clearly established that this is wrong, we feel, and then give a reason. They didn't do that. They didn't. Instead, in this case, the majority went ahead and said, well, you know, we, we disagree with the, with the sentence. But the sentence, you know, but, but we didn't find that the state involved, you know, broke any rules. You know, everything was done within the letter of the law. Therefore, it's okay. Well, as a lot of people like to point out historically, what the Nazis did to the Jews during the Holocaust was entirely legal. The laws were passed. The laws were on the books. The Nazis were following the laws. And the Nazis actually pushing the button, pulling the trigger, flicking the switch, they were just following orders. But as we know, lawful does not make right or wrong. It just means somebody was in power one day and took a vote. That's it. So I found that especially egregious. 6-3. That's crazy. So that's what's going on here in this country, among a few other crazy wackadoodle things. Uh, there was this insane thing on the Sunday morning talk shows. Uh, Larry Kudlow, who's a Trump ball gurgler in his spare time, actually went on to Fox News and told them that, you know, President Biden wants to force all Americans to drink plant-based beer, which caused me to kind of do a double take because I all beer is made from grain, you know, hops. <laughs> I mean, how many beer commercials? I mean, I can remember seeing beer commercials where they'll they'll purposefully show you the barley and the 
and the hops and like, oh, look at these fine, wonderful ingredients we put into your wonderful craft beer, right? I've never seen a beer commercial with a cow or a chicken or or anything else. And it's it's crazy because the right has made up this crazy idea that the left wants to make everybody uh, vegans, which is not true um, at all, that nobody is suggesting that. that they're making shit up. But the the fear is that plant-based is such a evil term, uh, so loaded. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you want to eat four pounds of steak a day and give yourself colon cancer by the time you're 40, uh, yeah, knock yourself out, man. I, you know, whatever, I guess. Um, you know, free country. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's not good for you. But, I mean, to... The plant-based beer thing, that was just so crazy. Um, I mean, I did find out, I had to do some checking because I was like, okay, maybe this guy lives in a particular region of the country where there's a weird beer made out of something that I don't know about. Because I'm not a beer connoisseur, quite frankly. Um, I don't like beer. It's, it's a me thing. Don't worry about it. But... You know, I, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's just old and cranky and he remembers this one particular beer. So I did do some research. Research. Some beers, some, not all, do have animal proteins in them. Uh, this is in the form of gelatin uh, to help make the beer more frothy. Um, but it is by no means a main ingredient or a flavor contributor. So I wouldn't worry about it too much right now. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll get back to some uh, wonderful or scary or nightmarish world news. And welcome back to the Recovery from Politics podcast. Uh, Once again, I'm your host, Kyle Frame. And uh, welcome. So in world news, the major story over the weekend was the second most populous country in the world, India. And I found out that it's the it's the most populous country, not by that much, actually. Uh, China and India are number one and two, respectively, and uh, not very far off. <laughs> in fact, uh, India is only about 30 million people behind China, but that could be changing. Now, there's no worry of India falling out of the number two slot. The number three country is us, the United States, with 330 million. So they would have to lose a billion people before the United States would even be in contention for the number two spot. So good news, I guess, Uh, because currently they have a problem where they're creeping up to almost 400,000 new cases of COVID-19 every single day. 400,000 per day. That's a lot. (laughs) That's, uh, That's crazy. And, you know, here in the United States, we have, as many people like to tout, you know, oh, we have great healthcare and the best doctors and the best medicine and everything else. India does not. 
India is not, um, as our former president would call it, a shithole country, they are on the rise. Uh, however, they do have a huge disparity between the urban and rural areas. Uh, the population is dense throughout. That's not the huge issue. But it seems like infrastructure is very difficult. So they have this thing over in India. It's kind of a double-edged sword. So here in the United States, we have a Walmart basically in every town, right? Well, in India, that would be illegal. In India, uh, you can't franchise something. You can only have two of them. So there are, are only two Walmarts in the entire country of India servicing 1.3 billion people. And there are only two McDonald's for that. Now, <clears throat> this is, I guess, a good thing if you don't want a monopoly. This definitely prevents monopolies. Um, it also encourages small business. You know, if you want your country to be economically tied to small business, this is also a positive. So a lot of these ideas were put into place as a kind of anti-colonialism act. So the United States, uh, one of the reasons the Bill of Rights is so weird in that we we have things listed there that sometimes you wouldn't think of. I mean, past free speech, free religion, and you know the Second Amendment, everything gets a little murky after that. Um, and the reason that a lot of them are there are because those are the things that the British monarchies would do to us. For example, free speech. We have free speech and the right to assemble because the British monarchy monarchy forbade us from doing those things. <clears throat> uh, one argument made by the right when they like to talk about the Founding Fathers is that they believe, oh, the Founding Fathers were all good Christian men and they made this country to be a Christian nation. Well, don't forget that Christianity was pretty much the only religion allowed and also the right to assemble was not had. You couldn't group together in a basement during the pre-revolutionary days and conspire or even just hold a meeting couldn't happen that was illegal but the government did allow assembly at one place the church so you did have churches filled magically with people like George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and all the founding fathers magically would go to the same church and they would have a meeting because going to church was the only act of assembly we have. So, you know, we have the right to assemble because that was what was taken from us. We have the right to bear arms because, to a degree, again, the Second Amendment's kind of fishy and it's, yeah. But also we have other amendments like uh, you're not allowed to, the government's not allowed to quarter military in your house. That used to happen quite a bit. They would just put a red coat in your house and you'd have to, you know, feed them and take care of them, give them a bed, that kind of thing. Now that was done for twofold. One is obviously the military is a large beast and you want to make sure they're housed and clothed properly and taken care of. And this takes some of the burden off of your huge war machine and puts it onto the people. It's kind of like a 
extra taxation taken to the next level. Uh, but another reason was, say, for example, they thought you were seditious against the monarchy. But they couldn't prove it. Maybe you were borderline. Maybe you were just one of those people who they were like, you know, there's something, something not right about that guy. Let's put a red coat in his house. Yeah. And obviously the red coat would keep tabs on it. So there are reasons we have that. Well, when it comes to India, basically the same thing. They were under colonial rule uh, by the British for a very long time. And one of the things that Gandhi and all them noticed when they were, you know, trying to kick the British out was that this beast known as capitalism and the way that capitalism can be weaponized against lesser peoples or people that it considers lesser, in this case, the way the British looked at the Indians. Uh, they didn't care for that. So they went out of their way and they made it illegal for capitalism you know, those large, multi-headed corporate beasts to come in and take over their country because they had a pretty good idea that, you know, okay, we kicked the British out. Well, then all that's going to come in is potentially some oligarchs from Britain with their trains and engines and oil and take over our country that way. So this was all done against that. Now, upside, it totally did its job. India is not owned by some evil British oligarchs like other unfortunate nations uh, also caught up in, you know, Britain's expansionist and, you know, colonizing campaign. Downside, though, nothing's big enough in India to tackle the problems they have with infrastructure and medical need. There is no Pfizer. There's no big pharma in India, which... Big Pharma is like a four-letter word over here in the United States in the political world. But India could use some right now in a big, big, bad way. They do not have enough vaccines. They don't have a way to distribute the vaccines. They don't have anything. There are people in India right now dying of this disease who would love to have a little bit of that boot on the American neck of, from Big Pharma right now. They'd love to have it, just a little bit. Um, so it is a it is a double-edged sword, but you know, you you really gotta wonder because of this, you can point to their Prime Minister Modi and and say he's obviously a Trump loving cartoonish man and he has done some evil shit. He has. He's bad. But when it comes to governing, is he bad in a generic kind of dictator type way? Or, in this case, is he bad because, quite frankly, the Indian government sucks at stuff like this, you know? Or it could be a combination of the both, probably that. But anyway, right now, India is in a dire crisis. And you may be wondering, but Kyle, why on earth would I give a shit about India? I'll give you two reasons to actually care. Um, the first is economics. Uh, so way back in the day, I believe it was the AT&T AT president went to India to, you know, expand his company, obviously. And he went to India and he was like, wow, it's so amazing. Everyone here is so nice. They speak English. And somebody explained to them, oh, no, every Indian speaks English. That was one thing that came out of the British colonization was that they forced all of us to speak English. 
you know, prior to British colonization of India, I had the understanding that there were hundreds potentially of different languages. And one of the main contending points in India at that time was that nobody could communicate with each other. So again, this is just, this isn't historical. This is just what I've heard through the grapevine was that if you were to give a positive to anything from British colonization of India, it is that now they all speak the same language and thus can communicate with each other. Anyway, uh, so AT&T boss goes over there, finds out everybody there can speak English and immediately comes home and begins the plan that you now see and hear all the time. You call into an 800 number for a company, any company, but an American company. And you're like, I need to speak with a customer service representative. And the next thing you know, you have somebody with an Indian accident, uh, accident, good Lord, I apologize, uh, Indian accent. And his name is Paul, because in reality, you can't pronounce his name. So he has an American, an American name for when he's on the phone with you. So if they are in a no shit crisis where, again, 400,000 people are catching this disease every single day, you could see a big problem. Now, there are some right-leaning assholes who would say, woohoo, more jobs for me, woo. Well, unfortunately, uh, the United States has its own infrastructure problem as well, and that problem would very quickly kick your ass. All of a sudden, there would be no one to answer your phones, and it would be weeks before the regular companies can get online. It's not just so much as somebody having someone who can answer the phone. They have to know the ins and outs of the system. Okay, for better or worse right now, the Indian people take our phone calls and they run you through that system. You know, they know who to give your paperwork to to make sure that it gets done. Okay, I can hire somebody to answer a phone right now. I cannot have them trained and perform the proper actions you know, all the stuff that a customer service representative actually knows uh, that quickly. That's going to take weeks. That's going to take experience on the job, being trained by somebody who actually knows what the hell they're doing. Um, it could cause a huge communication downfall here in the United States. This could trickle to us in that way. Say, for example, right now, it's a pain in the ass right now to get a COVID vaccine. If, if you're waiting in line, you have to call somebody, you have to deal with somebody. If you're lucky, that person is an American and all the people that they need to communicate with to get you that vaccine are also American here in America. But if even one of them is dependent on an Indian person to answer that phone call, that is going to cause disruption. That is going to cause more delays. Delays in healthcare, delays in infrastructure, delays in shipping. A delay one place will cascade to delays other places. It's just the way it works. This is a drawback of that wonderful coded phrase, globalization. Something that affects us one place affects us everywhere. Now, I think it's good that Americans are finally starting to think about things in a global sense and be like, oh, yeah, we can't just go around swinging our dicks being the big bad boy on the block anymore because this has real world, you know, complications. 
um, but it is what it is right now. Um, so you do need to be very, very worried about that on the economic front. You should also care on the disease front because you've got 1.3 billion people with COVID. They're not all going to stay in India. They are going to flee. They are going to run. They're going to go to Pakistan. They're going to go to Saudi Arabia. They're going to go to China. They're going to go wherever the hell they can to get help. They're going to be refugees. Refugees with disease. And this disease, which is already highly contagious, is going to fly around the world again. You want to stop this crisis in India so that it doesn't go somewhere else. Because these things don't remain contained. There will be another wave from this Indian crisis right now. Also, the fact we should know new variants of COVID could come out of this. The more people that catch COVID, the more people that allow it to kind of incubate within the human genome and do its thing, it means the more likely that it's going to mutate into a new version. And we have absolutely no control over that. But if the new version is suddenly harder to treat, more lethal, more contagious, or immune to the current vaccines, then this whole damn thing starts over again. Everybody here currently is hoping and praying we can get to summertime and reopen the beaches and have fun again. India could stop all that real quick. So it is in everyone's best interest that the United States help in any way it can with the crises in India or any other country that's dealing with it. And uh, I know it was a while ago, but I was talking about how Cuba currently has a couple vaccines on the market. The United States should also try to help them with that. The more people, the more different versions of this vaccine, the better. Get it out there get it out. Even if it's only 50% effective, that's better than nothing. Get it out. Um, we, we've got to clamp down on this thing. But anyway, in other news, um, and this is just breaking today, so um, th this, is, this is really amazing. This is fantastic. Um, Iranian Foreign Minister, I'm going to butcher the name. I apologize right now. Javad Zarif gave a seven-hour interview to a state reporter, and he was dangerously candid. Three hours of it has been leaked outside of Iran. Iranian officials are already saying, oh, don't worry, we'll find out who leaked it and punish them accordingly. They're not even trying to dispute the shit that this guy said. Um, so we got a real rare glimpse onto the inside of Iranian politics and also Iranian foreign policy. Because, okay, so the foreign minister of Iran is like uh, the United States Secretary of State. Okay, so it is currently, I believe, Anthony Blinken. It was John Kerry. Uh, it changed so many times under Trump. I have no idea who you really want to claim as his. Tillerson was the first. Anyway, that's who this is. So a very high-ranking Iranian official uh, gave this, you know, long interview. And apparently the whole interview was supposed to be some kind of uh, uh, a documentary historical thing. Like he was talking about all kinds of stuff. 
but of course the juicy excerpts um, about modern times is what has been leaked. Now, keep in mind, I don't think Javad Zarif is in any trouble over this because he was speaking to a state reporter and over in Iran, that usually means that, you know, he can say whatever he wants to this person because most of it's never going to see the light of day. It'll go through censors and they'll cross everything else, black out the text, you know, delete all the parts that are bad and then only send in their edited version. So he probably was under the impression that he could speak as freely as he wanted because who cares, right? It's all going to get edited in the back room anyway. Well, in this case, it didn't. So the fun stuff. Uh, first off, he said something we all kind of knew, but now it's official. Uh, diplomacy in Iran is sacrificed. That is his word, sacrificed uh, for military action. Uh, anytime he wants to try and actually do his job, which is to be diplomatic, uh, the military shoves him aside and bombs the hell out of whatever he was trying to be diplomatic with. Uh, again, that's something we knew based on Iran's actions, but it's interesting to hear it confirmed, right? Uh, another thing was that he says that during the negotiations for the Iranian nuclear deal with the United States all the way back in 2014, uh, Russia and Putin were constantly working to undermine the deal. Russia did not want it. Russia was invited to the table because they kind of had to be, but they didn't want to be, and they wanted the deal to fail. So the way Zarif explains it is that Russia slash Putin, those two things are interchanged right now, um, basically, they want peace. They do not want Iran to be a disruptor to the West or anything like that, but they also do not want Iran to have normalized ties with the West. So it's cool for the saber rattling and all that as long as it doesn't get out of control and cause a problem for Russia. So Russia has no interest in the United States going to war with Iran or vice versa but they also don't want us on speaking terms. So he, apparently they, they constantly were to undermine the nuclear deal, which of course brings into question the entire Trump presidency because Trump and Putin were big friends. And of course, Trump frequently parroted all the Kremlin talking points all the time, everywhere. And of course, gave up on this nuclear deal, which he already had a problem with since a black man made it uh, and he hated that. So he ended up destroying it. But you have to wonder now, um, you know, what was Putin telling him at the time? Or was he encouraging that action? Was he constantly, you know, needling him about it? Because obviously Putin did not want the nuclear deal to happen. So, you know, that, that's very interesting. Um, but another thing that was also interesting about this was they, they ended up talking about Syria. So... For years, it's believed that, uh, you know, the Iranian military officers went to Russia and spoke with Putin and that it was Iran that convinced Russia to intervene in Syria on Bashir Assad's behalf. So, <coughs> ah, excuse me. So, Russia would provide air support. Iran would provide ground troops. And it was Iran who was trying to convince Russia, hey, Russia, you need to get involved in this. This is a big deal. That's what we've all been thinking for these last few years. Uh, turns out it was the exact opposite. According to Zarif, it was Russia. It was Putin. 
who had to convince Iran to get involved in Syria. Iran had no interest in helping Syria, in helping Assad. But Putin was the one who convinced them to get involved to begin with, which does fly in the face of this whole Iran's out to screw up the Middle East narrative that the saber rattlers over here in the West have been pushing. They've been pushing forever that Iran wants to just destroy everything in the Middle East and take it over. Well, this would suggest otherwise. This would suggest that, you know, Iran is actually more surgical in their strikes and not just a blunt force. We're going to dominate the world, which is what they keep saying. Is it actually Iran sitting there going, hey, you know, who cares if Assad lives or dies or, you know, controls the country or not? It has nothing to do with us. We're not interested. And I just thought that was very, very interesting uh, to hear uh, because, again, you usually don't get this kind of unvarnished uh, speak about the internal politics of Iran. Uh, usually they're very guarded. You only get things that have been pre-approved by the government. Um, this is not what happened here, and it, it does shed some light on the way they think. Will it change anything? It might change how countries dealing with Iran deal with them. So, for example, you know, I think a lot of diplomats going to Iran from the United States will frequently wag their finger about the Syria thing and be like, you know, you guys have no right to talk. Look what you did in Syria. But now knowing, or at least strongly thinking that it was actually Putin pulling the strings, if the United States now doesn't have a bit of a bargaining chip and go to them saying, you know, you don't, you don't have to listen to Russia. We're here. We can be friends. If this doesn't subvert Putin and his, you know, plans for the region, uh, I imagine a smart diplomat would take this and think, yes, let's, uh, let's try to work with the Iranians again. Let's see what we can do. Let's, let's, you know, tap at the edges, see if anything breaks off on this. Um, and I'm hoping that is, you know, the, the, the Biden plan. Uh, they, they do talk a lot about wanting peace with Iran. This might be a way of getting that. This might actually open some doors to the United States and the West. So, you know, I hope that's good news. And again, I just find it fascinating to actually get this, you know, firsthand account from somebody in a high level who knows things, you know. And sure, he wasn't at the meeting with Putin and uh, the, the, the Iranian military leaders, you know, talking about who did what. But you do know that at that level, somebody told him something. Somebody high level said, hey, this is what happened in the meeting that he trusts or he wouldn't repeat this as fact. Because, again... There's no reason for him to lie. He was talking to a trusted source who he knew would go go through it, scrub everything, run it past all the right sensors and all that, and make sure it was good. So there's no reason for him to lie. I mean, so whatever you think, he believes that Putin is the reason they're in Syria and not the other way around. And that is just absolutely fascinating. Anyway... Uh, thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Leave a review if you can. I'd love to hear from you guys. 
and uh, we'll try to get this back on topic and uh, back on back on normal. You know, do this a little more often. Say hi to everybody. So, anyway, you guys have a great day. We'll see you next time.